This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I'm delighted to finally welcome onto the podcast with me, uh, keeping it in the UK for this show, a respected investigative researcher in the UK and around the world with almost 40 years investigating a range of phenomena, including UFOs, cryptids, the paranormal and much, much more. Owner of the popular Phenomena magazine, he is also owner of the Awakening, Awakening Expo, which runs in Blackpool this year from the 24th to the 26th of June. I will announce the winner of the two tickets being given away uh, given away later in today's show, but thank you to everyone who entered that online. Before then, I'd very much like to welcome Mr. Steve Mera to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me on. It's good to finally speak to you. The podcast's been going just over two years, and there's been many times you've been requested as a guest or mentioned, and uh, I think I've been around quite a bit in the UK, so it's good to finally get to you. And the timing works out fantastically well with the Awakening coming up on the horizon as yeah. well. It does, um, yeah. A bit before we get to Awakening, which we're going to talk about, uh, you've got a long, illustrious, uh, storied career uh, within the world of UFOs and other phenomena, and I want to talk about that first. What was it that first attracted to you to this world of the unexplained? Uh, I'm blaming me, Dad. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's easy to do. <laughs> he had um, he had a load of books on the subject when I was young, and uh, I think when my friends were reading comics and stuff, I was tucking into Eric Von Daniken and and Brad Steiger books, you know, back then. Um, and I was interested. I was interested from a very young age. Um, and then um, uh, I just took it from there, really. My interest turned into uh, a full-time job for 40 years now. So it's um, it's been an interesting journey, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. I can appreciate that. For me, it was my gran. She used to tell me all kinds of stories and she had um, all kinds of library books that were 20 and 30 years overdue to go back. I believe <laughs> that the, the Philadelphia Experiment was one of them. I always yeah. remember that was uh, 16 years and counting at the yeah. time and that was 20 years ago. Um, and I remember going round to the library and you would go to that mystery section or whatever it was and there was books on Nessie and back then you could rent VHS for me and you could take the videos home, and I used to watch all sorts. Um, I know, it's, and... a, it's a very strange feeling when you know, look back to those times when I was younger and um, looking at those books and uh, and the videos that you could get at that time. And, and now, like, I can, you know, it's just strange to, to say that I'd met these people now and I've worked with these people, you know, Brad Steiger did before he passed away, and then his wife. Uh, still work with Eric Von Daniken regularly. Um, and it's 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 a strange, yeah. I suppose you know that I would have never dreamt that you know when I first picked up those books, I'm going to be working with or you know dealing with these people in the future. It's just a strange event, and so you, like I said, the, the universe takes you where it wants to take you, and um, all those doors opened for me, um, which was profound, really, and I just kind of followed the path. On a very slight side note, do you miss the physical media side of things like getting a book or getting a tape 
you know, and, and holding something yeah. physical. Now it's all just online, and it's maybe a bit less personal almost. Yeah, it is. I mean, years ago, I mean, you know, I had a, a large collection of VHS tapes, uh, and uh, you could, you know, you ordered them, you grabbed them when you can, had a special DVD, uh, sorry, video player to play American tapes as well, so I could purchase them overseas because there was more coming out of America in them days. Um, yeah, I mean, my archive was huge. You know, I did, uh, over the years, I've accumulated so much material. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, we switched, and um, now the world's at our fingertips regarding this information. It's information overload now. It's actually the opposite, you know. Hard to get hold of stuff back back then. But now, you know, it's just overloaded material. And it's trying to find that genuine material and what's right and what's not. And it's anyone can put something out online, whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago and longer, it's, it took some some doing to put a book out. Um, back then, what were some of your own early experiences or sightings? Was it to do with the paranormal? Was it UFOs? Well, I started in the subject of UFOs um, in back in 1983. My first investigation was in Liverpool regarding a couple that had witnessed strange light in the sky and had had um, um, took some photographs of it. And uh, it was just a light in the sky, but it was still classed as a UFO back then. Um, and um, I spent probably about 15 years in the subjects of UFOs until I thought, you know, pretty much exhausted as much as I possibly could go because I was always one, you know, I wanted to find rational explanations or is there an explanation for some of these things? And, um, and of course, my mentors told me back then that, you know, it's a very nuts and bolts phenomena. Uh, these crafts are traveling the vast distances of space. You may be using some type of exotic engines and they're extraterrestrials and they want good for us and good for Earth and, and all those sort of things. Wonderful stories. Um, but after 15 years, I thought, do you know what? This is just not going anywhere. We are regurgitating, going round and round and round in a circle. And after 15 years, I thought, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> You know, another photo and another video is just going to add to the mountain we already had. Um, but I was very interested in about how people perceive the phenomena. So I kind of got involved in the uh, in, in psychology, behavioral psychology, um, and then into parapsychology, and then into the paranormal, uh, advanced paranormal studies and stuff like that. And I spent the next 20 years in, in, in parapsychological circles and conducting specialized tests. Uh, and, th- and a number of different projects. And um, then, then what I realised was the frustration of not getting anywhere within the subject of ufology was because it lacked the, the information that we required to make any conclusive you know, conclusions. And that's because the information lies not in the subject of ufology, but in the subject of the metaphysical, the paranormal, the supernatural, the spiritual, and so on and so forth. Um, so for me, you know, later in life, I realised that what we have to do is, is because we've got this compartmentalisation between the subjects, the paranormal guys have never dealt with UFO guys and vice versa in, in many different fields. Um, I started to tear down those barriers, those walls that's compartmentalised us for so long. And then it started to realise that there's um, attributes um, associated from various different fields to the UFO phenomena. 
Uh, and then I started to think, okay, well, this is providing new areas of research. It's adding some bits to the picture that we originally had. And I thought, well, okay, this is probably the best way to move forward. And now what we're hearing, you know, is uh, we, we are on the cusp of ufology changing. I can guarantee that. Um, and we are leaning well away from that old hypothesis that they're traveling the vast distances of the space. Um, you know, and um, that even the extraterrestrial hypothesis, to be honest with you, um, it has changed considerably. Uh, and I'm good, really, you know, because I think that's that is the best way to move forward. So what I do now is I've incorporated both studies of fields of what I've learned over the years and been involved in um, into the same pot. I throw everything into the same pot. I refer to it as phenomenology. And uh, and it's a lot more deliverable in regarding answers than it is just being you know um, just being able to being stuck in one particular box, say for ufology as an example. They are um, limitations when you actually do that. So um, so I've I've researched the uh, the crop circle phenomena uh, extensively, um, the cryptid phenomena extensively, um, the paranormal, the supernatural, the demological, if you want to call it that. Uh, all aspects of UAP and UFO phenomena, um, and kind of been involved in all. I've been involved in missing people investigations and all sorts of different things, which I would consider anomalous phenomena or profound, you know, unusual stuff. And uh, and it's led me to this point in time when I look at the cocktail of phenomena which is presenting itself, and I can attribute some to this, some to this, some to this. These different areas where, in fact, that's what it really does consist of, you know. Uh, and I don't really want to know why it was compartmentalised so much. Maybe it was done on purpose to stop us sort of gaining answers to a phenomena. Um, but now we've dropped all those barriers. We are gaining gaining some footage, and, and, and um, which is good, because it's leading us in a direction away from the old hypothesis um, and leading us into new areas of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, paranormal mechanics, uh, and all those sort of things, and even a strong connection to Earth and geological phenomena. So um, that's good for us because we're advancing the subject. No longer is ufology or UAP studies static. We are moving forward now, some, taking some steps now. I swear you can read my next question because you've covered so much of it within that answer already. But I, I, it's an interesting point you raise. I want to ask how far can that line of thinking go that so many of the, the areas within these different subjects of phenomenology are connected? There are some who will link, you know, Bigfoot to UFOs and, and Nessie to UFOs. For me, that's a tad far, some of those. But what about yourself? What are some of the more unusual links that you've uncovered? Um, well, surprisingly, there's links all over the place. Um, I mean, if we just take for an example um, the paranormal, which we refer to as a very old earthly phenomena, um, has numerous similarities, or well, identifiers, should we say, um, identical things taking place in the subjects of UFOs. We find that um, this phenomena predates historical documentation. So it goes back, maybe we're the new kids on the block, who knows? I mean, it goes back as, as long as we can possibly think. Um, but, uh, I mean, when we say going back that, I mean, you know, my colleague who I work with, we got it back to, I think, 700,000 BC in Botswana. You know, but what's interesting is that how this phenomenon, as it tracks through time, 
it changes its appearance. The phenomena stays the same, but the mask is forever changing, um, which I don't know if we've really ever seen the true, the true phenomena. I mean, everything seems to be a representation of the phenomena. Um, because it's it's interchangeable and uh, and can provide physiological constructs for us to interact with. So um, I would say that it's, it's been going on since, you know, as long as we can think of. Uh, the aspects of the paranormal we used to put in a separate category as a separate box, uh, we were wrong to do so because the characteristics what take place in UFO encounters crosses over into the paranormal, crosses over into the cryptid phenomena. Now, the cryptid phenomena is a tricky one because, you know, you you may have, there is that possibility that in the most remote regions on planet Earth, there are some large creatures which, you know, might be in existence. I mean, it takes me back to the days of when they first discovered the panda bear. Um, you know, somebody come running out of the forest one day in Japan and said, you know, we told people what they what he'd seen, this strange creature milling about, quite slow moving, black and white, you know, stands out in a forest of green. And um and uh, they set off to try and discover more of them. And uh, they didn't find the next one to sixty years later. You know, so that's because the environment it was living in is just you know, it's it's not easy to 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 trek through. It's not easy for, for humankind to venture forth into it, um, and that's why it's not so much of it being elusive. It's uh, it's basically because of the geology. Now, it's the same applies, you know, regarding you know, if you talk about U.S. Bigfoot, you know, there's a lot of people I've talked to out there um, who believe it's a real physical creature. I can't argue with that because there's physical evidence. Uh, but then there's physical evidence from paranormal encounters, and though you know those supposed to be, many people think them to be non-physical phenomena. And that's not the case. Um, but then you know when we talk about cryptids in the UK, you know we have <laughs> surprisingly we have had Bigfoot in the UK seen quite a lot. Um, it's you know it's not feasible to say an animal could could live in the UK, you know, and, and not be known, especially the amount of food it would require. Um, to be seen, to be cited so many times, you know. But we have cryptids such as the dogmen and the werewolf type thing. That actually also happens overseas. There are plenty of cases in the US of that. Um, but um, the phenomena associated with the cryptids is we have lots of Oz factor type experiences, you know, which are associated to the void of sound, this, this sudden silence before the incident. I mean, certain frequencies that the phenomena could be generating, infrasonic frequencies. Um, which can also cause um, your sensory perceptions to be altered. Even the, even scent glands can can be altered through frequency to make you think you're smelling sulfur. And sulfur is associated with with those reports. Sulfur is also associated to the UFO phenomena. Uh, so you find many many occasions these crossovers between them, um, and you find so many between them that you know you consider that there's a good there's a there's a likely explanation that these deliverable phenomena are from a source that is delivering different things and you know we look at them as separate entities when in fact you know they are pretty much one of the same thing so if you look at these these various phenomena as being under one umbrella do you think the case is more likely as we discover like you say more and more about you know quantum physics and what the nature of reality is we learn about consciousness 
that potentially we aren't and haven't always been the dominant species on this planet and that there are other species that, like you say, that the panda wasn't hiding from us, it wasn't being evasive, we just couldn't find it. And yeah. it's quite likely there's a chance that we hear now, especially in the world of UFOs, that there are potentially non-human intelligences. Lou Elizondo famously referred to mankinds, that mm-hmm. maybe we should start looking closer to home and there's potentially well, yeah. something else yeah. on this planet we just can't see. I totally agree. I, mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, we've had this ruse for many years to stare up at the sky and think, you know, these things coming from the vast distances of space to travel. It's too sci-fi for my liking. Uh, it's like a Star Trek episode's unfolding. I mean, they're all bipedal and they're all, you know, they must be, I mean, if you take a, take for an example how many different types of entities have been seen worldwide, there's over 2,000 of them. Are they all coming from 2,000 different planets out there? You talk to the SETI guys, uh, which we've done, and they said, well, you know what? <laughs> it's quite an interesting quote, actually. Um, space is unusually quiet. That's what they said. Unusually quiet. We're not seeing a superhighway pack pack backwards and forwards travelling to Earth. I mean, we get some bits and bobs now and again, but we're not, you know, I mean, if we look, statistical surveys carried out, the most le- the most recent one was pretty much only three quarters of the countries on, on the planet participated in. Um, the sightings would be reported roughly about every 10 seconds. Now, you have to take in consideration some of those are hoaxes, not true, some of them are misidentifications, but at the same time, you can also be conservative because not everybody's reporting them. Yep. So even if we just rounded it off to say, all right, there's 10 seen every, you know, every, well, there's one seen every 10 seconds, then where are they all coming from? Because one thing is for sure, they're not got a super highway of traffic going, back, going in and out, passing backwards and forwards to Earth. You know, we'd, we'd see ionospheric disturbances all the time. You know, would it be easy to record and track? And that's not the case. Um, what the evidence supports is that it has a very, a much more geological basis as as opposed to aerial. I mean, we might see things in the sky, but when we're looking up, we're usually unaware of what's really happening in our geology in the ground because we know that um, um, that this phenomena can um, has the capabilities of the metaphysical uh, changes so that it can enter into cliffs. It can go into the ground, it can go into hillsides, it can go into volcanoes. You know, we're we, we aware of that, that it, it breaches the physical reality we know. And so when uh, ATIC comes out and says, you know, there's trans-medium travel of, of crafts, well, yeah, we can accept that they could fly in, in space, possibly. If they can fly underwater, you know, if they get underwater, they can go in space, you know, with the, as long as, you know, as long as they can deal with pressure. Uh, and flying in our atmosphere makes it three different forms of travel. Um, but they left out purposely the um, the one that enters into physical you know, the physical land, where we've videoed them going into land and seen them going in there. Um, so that's been left out purposely. And the reasons for that was because there's only so much the scientific community can digest. So what we need to do is, is that we have to, and don't get me wrong, lose very aware of this sort of star I've talked to him about this is he's very aware of all the extra stuff but to just throw it out on the table is a bit uh, could be discouraging to scientific teams you know so since the Pentagon came out and mentioned about you know the, the footage that they got uh, and the, the pilots incidents reported 
there was a lot of interest from the scientific community which are starting to look in and assist their, you know, offer their services in regarding the research of UAP. Um, if we were to just throw it on the table, all that woo-woo stuff, then they're not, it's going to be too hard for them to digest. So it has to be done in digestible chunks, deliverable chunks to them along the way. We can't just throw it out on the table because we have always scare them away, you know. I mean, trying to trying to say, okay, well, we've got to reconstruct physics in a sense of speaking because the physics that we know doesn't comprehend how how um, it can be broken by this phenomena uh, or manipulated. So we have to do it in digestible chunks. So, but we are getting there. In the higher, I mean, a number of ta- I'm, I'm with a number of think tanks on this, and work is work is going. Work is being carried out. Tests are being carried out, and it is almost there. It's almost just about to flip, where there'll be more evidence to support it's a terrestrial phenomena. And not necessarily within our reality. We could be dealing with another reality. Very close and right next door to us, that's confirmed by scientists at Harvard University. Um, and it pops in and it pops out. It, it manifests and demanifests. It materializes and dematerializes. Very similar to the apple phenomenon of the UFO, uh, of the paranormal and poltergeist stuff. Um, in fact, the, the the analysis of an apported mug, um, the details that we got back from the investigation and analysis of that showed that there had been such a huge diathermic reaction. It was on. It was very hard to identify. It was the original mug that left, um, but it. The diathermic reactions in the mug were identical to the diathermic reactions in plants under the investigation of what is referred to as plant traumatology analysis. This is that is, um, I'll explain what that is. That is when a UFO comes, is seen to manifest close to the ground, woof, just appears. It affects the plant growth, it disappears. The scientists go in, take the plants for analysis, and find that it's got these diathermic reactions. What's interesting is that they're almost identical, if not identical. Um, which would suggest that the, the sudden manifestation of a UFO and the sudden manifestation of a mug as an apple are utilising the very same physics that are involved. Now, if we're dealing with something which is from some other planet and we're also putting it against something which is paranormal-based, which is said to be an old earthly phenomenon, we, we, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be seeing similarities in, in the... Uh, in the physics of it, of the physics of that, you know, that uh, materialization on both sides being so identical. So we have to say, okay, you know, there's another thing. There's another connection between the two, you know. And there's not just one. There's many, many, many of these, Andy. So um, is enough there now to say, let's put it on the table and say, okay, we are dealing with um, a source. And that source is deliverable to us in numerous different ways which also has the capabilities of creating physiological constructs, you know, physical things, you know, uh, which we presume to be real. I mean, what is real? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, people have said that they've, they've felt the presence of an apparition and they, they've had physical contact. Sometimes they've been prodded, pulled, whatever. It's in our reality. It's in, it physically interacts with us and our environment, so you say, okay, it has some physicality to it, just like the UFO phenomena, just like the, the cryptids, and so on and so forth. Um, so what is that deliverable source is more the question. And um, and it likes to have a laugh. It likes to trick us. It likes to play games. 
Um, there is plenty of evidence of that over the years through scientific studies in this field. Um, and you'll also get the apparition phenomena and the manifestation of phenomena during round saints tables, seances and stuff. Uh, those were the first ones that came into communication with entities and UFOs long before they, they were documented in newspapers being seen in the skies and stuff. Um, and, uh, and the Vril Society got involved in that in, the, in, the, in Germany. And we had some experiments take place in Canada, the Philip experiment. We also, in England, we had the Skull experiment going on. Um, I was involved with some of the more advanced stuff as we moved on. I had associates, uh, friends of mine, who were involved in the sort of advanced studies of Skull. Uh, we went one, one further into Phenomena Project, which was, uh, um, again, the same type of um, study program. Uh, and it's surprising that, you know, those entities, um, small UFOs would appear, about the size of a dinner plate, shining lights down. They are physical. Balls of light, which are physical, they have mass. You can catch them in your hands. You can feel the weight to them. The light travels through your fingers. Um, there's a very close association between what we thought was just paranormal uh, in that UFO field, you know, and, and even contact cases. So, um, so for, for, for me, it's all just one great big part. And um, we've conducted new research now, which is known as Project Doorway. We've been on that for about five years now. We, a lot of traveling around the, uh, the planet, but um, a lot of really interesting um, evidence and conclusions that we've reached regarding when these objects manifest that they leave a gravitational disturbance, a gravitational well, which is measurable. It's yeah. measurable. It, 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 it's like residual in, into, the, into our environment for a short period of time, and it's measurable. Um, and you can actually even see the effects of this through light bending through the gravitational wells. So, um, so yeah, we are getting somewhere. We're, we really are advancedly moving forward now in this subject, and it's just on its edge now. It's just about ready to flip over. Because at the higher end, you've got these guys, the scientist guys, saying, doing the experiments and, and looking at that side of the thing. On the other side, that old 70 years, we can't ignore it, you know, just as the government shouldn't. The last 70 years of UA, UFO phenomena, we can't ignore that. There's some very, very interesting uh, phenomena that's been reported and seen by many, many military people, very well documented. Those can't be ignored. Um and I think it's not so much that we are rebooting it under the heading of UAP now. We've made it something a little bit more easier for academics to offer their services and help us gain that extra footage now. Because, you know, the scientists would never be involved with UFO, you know. But now UAP, well, that's a little bit different. So, you know, I'm hoping that will, uh, that will assist us plentiful. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising, with 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them? Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique-to-them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. 
I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one, that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Let me unpack some of that, Steve, because there's a lot within there. And uh, good luck to my co-host, Dan, who likes to go back and watch these and do the timestamps for YouTube. So uh, when he's listening back to this, good luck unpacking all that. It was a lot of information. A couple of things to bring up, though. Um, the plant traumatology, and you talk about UFOs uh, materialising close to the ground. Is that potentially where we get crop circles from? Is that a link to that where they create some sort of pattern or are you just talking about an impact on the immediate flora and fauna? (laughs) My conclusion on crop circles is going to be slightly different than anybody else's you'd ever probably heard. I mean, I don't believe that the phenomena creates crop circles. I think we can create crop circles. I mean, I know know some very good people, you know, and, uh, and what they can do, they can even do weaved crop circles you know in the middle of the night and it is remarkable you look at it, you think it's absolutely impossible to create but it isn't it's just mathematics at the end of the day but i will tell you during the test in 1996 um scientists were involved some researchers were involved and of course some of these guys that i know which are very very good at creating this phenomena and they went out into the field and created a remarkable remarkable crop formation um, but what was really interesting is that the the phenomena that was registered from equipment afterwards by the science team, they couldn't understand. It was as if that somehow by creating the crop formation, um, the result at the end result of that is that there was phenomenal readings in that formation. And, and it shouldn't be. I mean, just the guys just went out there and pressed, pressed wheat down it shouldn't have been. It should I mean, they did test prior, and there was nothing unusual there. Afterwards, there was. There was lots of unusual things, readings and, and all sorts of strange things going on. And they did, couldn't understand how that happens. And I think this, there's something going on in regarding the geology and the, and the human consciousness in regarding the creation of phenomena uh, which is being recorded and monitored diversely through crop circles around the world. But what we've done is we've looked at that and thought it was an external phenomena. You know, I mean, I'm, though I, you know, I say come across people all the time saying this is an authentic crop circle. But what makes a crop circle authentic? Well, they pick up readings in them. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that it's a phenomenon that's created it. Don't get me wrong. You know, there is there are patches of of, of areas where. It has been adversely affected, not so much a crop formation, but adversely affected by possibly the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, I I completely get that, and I completely understand about the microwave effects on some of these plants. Um, But, I mean, when when you look at the results of um, the analysis that was in this crop circle, it fell in line with many of the other crop circles which were thought to be authentic around the world. Um, And yet, this one was recorded and manufactured in the field as we were there, and um, and yet 
afterwards it, it, it was left with the signature marks of an authentic crop circle so uh, that kind of blew my mind a little bit I mean I thought to myself well what's going on there then you know because if that can happen then we have to be looking at is it our intent is there a conscious connection between the geology of the of the ground and what we're doing um maybe maybe there's, there's certainly more an area there to explore absolutely more testing to be carried out but i was stumped on that one absolutely. That's, that's really interesting another point i wanted to bring out you mentioned that so many sightings go unreported now i've said many times on the podcast and newer listeners to the podcast recently especially through the month of may where we've had a lot of new listeners and viewers on youtube it won't know the podcast logo is a sighting i had in the mid 90s in glasgow and there were five of us including my mum my sister and a friend and, and his mum and we saw basically a Ferris wheel-sized UFO about half a mile down the road. Um, if you know uh, Knightswood in Glasgow, it was yeah. in a very built-up area, lots of houses, no fields, and it was pretty much next to a, a leisure centre. And this thing was at a tilted angle, spinning at an incredible speed. Now, we all saw this. It wasn't up in the sky. It was pretty much on the ground. And we looked at it, noticed it, and left. We didn't stay to watch it. We just observed it. Isn't that interesting? I was a little bit scared, a little bit nervy, but as a kid having an interest in UFOs, thought it was fascinating. But we, we just went on our way and walked home, lost sight of it, and that was it. It never disappeared, never went away. But I wonder, do you see any commonalities in your, your decades of research and investigations where people who report or even don't report get a sense of they saw something because they were meant to see it but not necessarily talk about it? Or, do, yeah, you know... Right. I wonder, is that a case of yeah. we we saw that in an area there would have been lots of people, but did yeah, other people no, necessarily see the same thing? Well, <laughs> that's what makes this um, <clears throat> the UFO phenomena so unusual. I mean, uh, when you have incidents where half the country should have seen it, only a handful of people will. You know, it is selective viewing. It's an observer effect. It's a conscious connection with the phenomena, and certain people in the given area might see it, where the majority wouldn't. You know, and that we do get many many times and um, there's a level and if you're tuned in with that level you're going to be an experiencer and see it uh, and if you're not then you're not it's as simple as that i mean there's a big thing to say you know when you talk to people and say i've never seen anything in my life that's fine that's great that's wonderful but is that because of the way they are and the way they think and the way they observe the world because the person around the corner has been seeing them all his life you know and um and what's the difference between these people? You know, uh, there is significant differences between certain people. And I think this phenomenon can target. It can certainly target people to experience a phenomenon and others not. Uh, or that there is, in fact, that there are certain people which are just in tune with the right type of frequency and consciousness at that moment in time to experience it. I mean, we see these things in our world, but we don't know if they fully exist within our reality. It would do for you and many of the people with you. Uh, but if it did for everybody, then, you know, you think, oh, the country would have been reporting these things. Some of them are huge, football field lengths and size. Um, and they just don't, because you want to get hand reported by four people passing on the bus one day. And it's just, it's so profound. That's what makes it so profound, this phenomenon, that it's much more than just a nuts and bolts craft. Um, is There is a new studies now that we're working on. Can I say that? Yeah, I can say this. <laughs> there's, there's new studies that we're working on now. It's called, you see, we have specialised equipment which can create, cause um, to obtain data from chemical analysis from UAP. 
um, when you target UAP with this equipment, you can get a chemical analysis readout. Some of those chemical analysis readouts uh, are pertaining to data which is identifiable as a living organism, some of these things. So the UAP phenomenon needs even to be broke down into structured craft, living organisms, intelligent plasma. You know, um, we haven't got to that point yet, but, you know, we're, we, we would have to do that. We've got to break it down because there seems to be a multitude of things, you know, high honospheric living organisms, for one thing. NASA know about them. People are exposed to them and reporting when they're usually pilots at 75,000 feet high, you know, stuff like that. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of strange things in our atmosphere. Um, but are they fully in our reality is a different question or not. You know, uh, some are, some aren't. Um, and if you just talk about some of these incidents like um, the Phoenix Lights incidents, not only did we have the lights over the mountain range, but we, we had giant, huge objects seen, flying wings, but they shimmered as they passed over literally 100 feet above people, um, residential homes. And these were so big, they said they literally could land a, a, a jet on one of the wings. It's alone, you know, could act as a runway. Um, but they shimmered. And uh, there was no radar readings from these things apart at all. Not, not, not from those huge. They should have lit up radar systems like Christmas tree, and apparently it didn't. Um, but then is that shimmer related to the skirting our reality? You know, we might visually see them, but are they fully there in our reality? You know, so, and we get lots of reports like that in the UAP or UFO phenomenon when they're kind of, yes, they are in our reality. One minute they're caught on radar, next minute they're not. They're, 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 they are, they're not. You know, they have the capabilities, this phenomena, to seemingly jump out of our reality into theirs or even just cusp it, you know, so we just get the. You know, we just might get one aspect, such as might see it, but it doesn't exist on radar. It doesn't exist in a physical sense. Some people have reported apparitional that some of these things have seemed to become see-through. You know, so we have to question that their capabilities in regarding our physiological world might be massively different. You know, so we've got a lot of things to con. It's not going to be easy, but we've got a lot of things to contend with in the future regarding the UAP, and and especially the the talk about some of these objects experiencing time in a different way to how we do could could justify how they move and the the tic tac famously was apparently moving like a ping pong ball inside of a glass when it was hovering above the water and people yeah. saying it was almost like a, a glitch and dan who's on the podcast with me mentioned that it seemed like a mobile phone when you drop it and your mobile phone for for people on youtube you know will tumble yeah. and fall and that seemed to be how the tic tac was moving until it noticed fravor and then it pointed up and straightened up and manoeuvred properly. So, again, it doesn't have to make sense and necessarily be a craft moving from A to B if this no. craft is moving through time. And I think that's something I've been talking about abductions at times on the podcast. And people talk about abductions happening to their family through generations. And you think, why would a UFO and some entities be interested in your your grandchildren and your grandparents and everything in between? Well, mm. what if for them that was half an hour? But for yeah. you, it's been 100 years of your family. But for them, exactly. they've just been dipping in and out the timeline. It's very, very different. Yeah, I mean, we say people have missing you know, missing time for like two hours, but they could have been just taken for for a minute. Yeah. You know, I mean, a minute a minute on their craft, you know, wherever we are, they could have been like two hours out of time. We'd, you know, we'd say, can you account for time? Well, not really, you know, which is really interesting. But we do have evidence of the time association, the time differentials in regard to the phenomenon. We have something known as a DT meter now. Um, it's a, it's um, um, a time displacement meter, 
And when we measure um, in locations where we've had recent manifestation activity of the UAP phenomena, or, UAP, or UFO phenomena, um, there is on some occasions latency, which is measurable, might only be 18 milliseconds, but it shouldn't exist, unless there's miniature black holes around, you know, it just shouldn't exist. So there is an association with, like you were saying about time as well. But you know what, we didn't, we didn't suss this. Our ancient ancestors sussed this years and years back, you know, by utilizing key locations of energy, geological energies on the Earth, um, also utilizing the um, the terahertz frequency from the sun, which we only get from rising sun or setting sun, and combining them in resonant chambers and creating an arm, an arm which is very difficult to deliver now because the vocal cords have changed of, of humans. Uh, and sometimes it takes years, and we want to look at the Gudra mantra for once. It takes about 20 years to learn it. That's even if you've got the vocal cords to do it, you know. So, um, But it's a combination of frequencies, two set different frequencies, one deliverable by light, one deliverable by vocal, and it's what we refer to as the double lock system. That double lock system um, takes place in the central point of these resonant chambers, um, allowing those individuals to have the experience um, of communication with deities. Now, that the process of that, I mean, it's been done all over the world, you know, and uh, uh, and the same methods were done pretty much. I mean, they were very, very clever, our ancient ancestors. Of course, you know, we're not as clever as them in that sense because when, though we've advanced, we've lost all the, um, we've devolved internally, you know, physiologically we're fine, but psychologically we've devolved. You know, our ancient ancestors probably could have even heard, you know, the infrasonic sounds of planet Earth at, at, uh, at 7.83 hertz, you know, so the human resonance. So they could have probably picked up, I absolutely guaranteed it would have picked up on that because there's evidence in the writings and the work and the, the work that they've left behind in stone. It tells us that they must have had knowledge of these frequencies, where to build things, how to build things, you know, and... And of course, we've lost that internally. Us, you know, sapiens, sapiens now, um, uh, compared to our ancestors who were just Homo sapiens, we've we've devolved in in, uh, in the psychological sense, but evolved in in, in another. Um, so we're trying to gather up. I mean, a lot of our information doesn't lie in the future. It means to go back into the past and learn about a bit about what our ancients were like. You can't get that from digging up an old bone, unfortunately. You know, and tell them, tell us about you know their their consciousness, their spirituality, what they were capable of doing psychically, and can't do it from a bone. Nobody will ever tell us. You can't get that information, unfortunately. Now, but the evidence lies behind. It tells us that they were very well aware of this phenomena. And interacted with this phenomenon. Sometimes they didn't want to interact with this phenomenon in certain places where they destroyed their own um, locations where they were um, having these communications with deities. So it's um, it's a phenomenon that's tracked through time over and over again and perceived its change. You know, and maybe in years to come, we'll, it'll change again. You know, we won't have the grades, we'll have something else. You know, I mean, where's all the space brothers now? You yeah. Know? I mean, let me ask, Steve, it's an interesting point you mentioned. We It seemed to at one point have had an ability or a, a relationship with these other beings, whether you want to look at chariots of the gods, you know, the, the pyramids and Stonehenge, where are we communicating with other beings that we then went on to call gods and deities and, and various religions were formed throughout the world, even to modern-day cargo cults where 
tribes in the jungles saw aircraft of yeah. our own landing and thinking these were incredible technologies that were you know unimaginable and they built runways to see if they would land again but they never did because we didn't need that piece of land do you think we've gone from a place of not needing the technology and having that kind of spiritual connection to whatever these things may have been we've gone through a period of, of evolution where we've gone away from that spiritual side and consciousness side of our, or any kind of connection to the universe and we're moving into a more technological age where now the technology is getting to a point we can replace that connection with the technological side of things and maybe we're going to get back away and maybe that's why these sightings increase why we can see these things better what are your thoughts on that um, well, you know, I mean, I, I, there's always a worry when you're referring to, you know, trans, transhumanism and how artificial intelligence might um, help us achieve some things. In, in many ways, it will. In other ways, though, it won't. Um, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that we're unaware of is the geology. You know, I mean, we, we know that this phenomenon, I mean, we, we realised, we, we got on track with this, utilising the different satellites in orbit looking at the gravitational anomalies and, um, and positive magnetic anomalies. And myself and um, the colleague by Fitzgerald worked on that extensively and, um, and cross-checked over 2,000 different cases worldwide with major UFO events. And they all were taking place in areas which are over 250 nanoteslas. So realise that those areas are, have a low bacterial area. These are safe zones. And so... If you're going to enter into an environment, you enter into a safe zone and you leave on that safe zone. So it's it's kind of it's like a, I guess it's suppose it's a bit like um, uh, a person might take you know the, the doctors that do operations, for example. It's a, a very sterile zone. You know these these areas of, of over 250 nanoteslas. You know um, I mean bacteria doesn't like positive magnetic um, energy, so it doesn't do many good. Uh, so therefore, these are you know pretty much safe zones. There's low bacterial levels there. Um, we know that they're manifesting in these key locations, but we weren't the first to figure that out. I mean, Philip Corso, um, who wrote uh, Day After Roswell, um, he said in 1982, and this is going back some time, that the U.S. government were watching, monitoring um, at least between five and seven and major um, magnetic, positive magnetic regions in association to UFO manifestations. Um, and I think they hit the nail on the head. There are key locations around this planet that um, that seemingly have phenomena. I mean, it's like we can go all the way back to Skinwalker Ranch, you know, for instance. It's not about the ranch. It's about the ground. It's about the location. Um, again, it's a positive magnetic region, over 250 nanoteslas. Um, it's the same for, I know, six ranches, actually. It's not just one. There's six active ones. And And... Yeah, Skinwalker is still active. I mean, the, the colleague was there, Barry, Senator Barry over. Barry went over in October 2019. The phenomenon is still going on, but it's, it's, it seems to have moved out towards the ridgeline um, somewhat, but uh, it's still uh, it's still present. Um, and it is for these other ranches as well, but it's not the ranches, it's the ground, it's locations, these active locations where there's these interactions. Now, we could say, people like to say, oh, well, there's portals and da-da-da-da-da, though I don't really like the word, even NASA using the darn word now. I mean, they confirmed through the MMS mission of four satellites, um, which uh, went out maybe about, what, what was that now, probably about six, five years ago, something like that, that portals exist. Um, not only are they large, but they are sustainable. And they use the word portal. You know, they 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 confirm they're real. Um, so 
um, their professional name is, is um, an electron diffusion region. And, um, and what happens when it's sustainable? Well, you know, you start getting into the ideas of sustaining wormhole technology. And, uh, and there is a lots of uh, evidence NASA, uh, which NASA have got now and other astronomical uh, departments to show that there's a, there's could be a lot of evidence to wormhole um, initiation techniques and stuff like that. So it's, it's getting very interesting, but this phenomena seems to utilize key locations on planet Earth. Um, and you can track that. And you, not only when you go to those locations, though, interestingly enough, they're also very potent in regarding paranormal disturbances or cryptids or mysterious disappearances. And I say mysterious, I mean the most profound of disappearances. Um, and um, and these, these locations just keep popping up and up again. Uh, so we visited those locations. We thought, well, okay, if that's the case, we'll put it to the test. And we did. And we witnessed phenomena firsthand on numerous occasions. But the problem is, is that, you know, it's, it's a massive dealing with that phenomenon because we don't really know what we're going to have. I mean, it's not all love and light, Andy, I can tell you that, you know. But the problem is, is that within this subject, there's a lot of people who want to push that forward, the love and light aspect, um, and brush under the carpet the ones which aren't. And you can't. You cannot brush under the carpet. You know the, the the ones which aren't haven't ended well for people. Yeah. You know, not all. You know, it's and um, and I have to look at the subject as a whole rather than just picking a side here. Uh, and I can say it's very manipulative. It's very deceptive, and it's exactly the same manipulation and deceptive I found within the sales circle experiments and stuff like that, um, which we took place for years. It's the same. It's exactly the same deception. It's exactly the same methodology that the phenomena uses either side. So um, it makes it more intriguing to me, you know, that there's these connections between this phenomena. Um, but it doesn't help us when we're being delivered that that information, you know, that, oh, well, you know, they're coming from someone from the planet. And that's again, I don't, <laughs> where's the evidence for that? Well, if you want to search out all the evidence for that, I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from the entities themselves telling people oh yeah well we come from here or we come from there you know um <laughs> and i wouldn't believe that nor would i believe information being passed to us to be authentic around the sales table when we got to a point where advanced studies of science circles and communications instrumental transcommunication and, and dvp direct voice phenomena the um the phenomena got to a point where we could ask 10 questions we say okay we can ask it 10 questions and it delivered all answers, all 10 answers, before we even gave the question, because it reads us, it knows us in our mind. The phenomenon can tell us anything. It can obtain it from us, you know. So don't be shocked to be told it's your, it's your uncle or whatever, because that's what's in your mind, you know. You'll be what you expect it to be, just like a poltergeist can seemingly manifest itself to be something which is of a lost, long, long lost relative when it wasn't initially at all in the first place. You know, we... We create, a, in a sense, a, a tulpa to, to some degrees, you know. So, um, so it's it's very very tricky. But um, we have to come up with new methods of research and push forward. Project Doorway is doing that. I mean, we've got so much evidence now. I mean, um, it, it's quite remarkable that the that we're dealing with an age old phenomena that's quite manipulative. It has its own agenda to do what it wants to do. Uh, and has been conducting so under the under the guise of so many different disguises over the years, um, 
uh, and they do get it wrong. You know, they get it wrong sometimes. Uh, a craft appears and it's not big enough to carry the go the occupants, or it's got portholes and rivets around and they didn't get that right. I mean, you shouldn't have portholes and rivets around a some extra, you know, some extraterrestrial craft you wouldn't expect to see it. You know, so um, yeah, they get, it, they get it wrong sometimes. It's not uh, it's not a perfect situation, you know. But um, yeah, that's. It, it makes it all intriguing because no matter what you were going to experience, whilst we were out there, we experienced it. And like I say, they can put up a lovely light show on. They can glamour, you know. But what you've got to be aware of is that, you know, whilst you're being glamoured and looking at these beautiful lights, you've got to be aware of what might be on the ground behind you, you know. So you just you don't know what type of experience you're going to have. Um, and some people have had bad experiences. So I'm not a promoter of bad experiences. I'm a promoter of the phenomena. And when I go and lecture around the world, I'll deliver the phenomena. You know, good, bad, take it as it is. You know, it's not all love and light. Um, and can we believe all the information? And the, you know, uh, they're very, very tricky, these things sometimes. I'm going to put the link to your contact in the desert presentation on Project Doorway and another phenomena that was involved. That's available online. It'll be in the description for, for the show for anyone who wants to check that out. Very interesting. I've managed to get through most of it myself as well and just in researching this show. So um, definitely check that out, folks. You mentioned yourself before that you felt you had exhausted the ufo subject uh, by the late 90s and then obviously you've, you've come back into it as your investigations and research have gone on many would say and, and i include myself in this as someone who's had a lifelong interest in the ufo topic that in 2017 the the new york times article to the stars academy and other things that happened at that time for many changed the course of ufology i've talked about at that point there being a bit of a fork in the road that there was one camp and one train of thought for many and it sort of split at that point. And we're still seeing the, the ramifications of that split now. How have you seen the subject change in just those last kind of four or five years? Um, well, I've seen, you know, I mean, it's no longer the, you know, the elephant in the room now, you know, which is a good point, you know, because you don't need to take my word for it. You know, there's, there's plenty of people saying that UAP exists now. So, um, but the problem for me is I don't know if it's a real true phenomenon we're experiencing. Um, in in that test region of where the naval military aircraft uh, do those types of things, um, I am not identifying it. I've got it on the shelf at the minute, really, to be honest with you, and um, I haven't concluded on it as yet because I'll tell you the reasons why. Is I've seen a very technological craft there moving around. You know, I mean, it's probably more likely drone type stuff. Um, it, the craft was uh, <laughs> it was very interestingly that the pilots when reported the tic tac um, had four prongs underneath you know and uh, and suddenly they disappeared from all reference and stuff don't know why but the original sightings portray that and those four prongs are like don't like to be pit up tubes pit up tubes are used for GPS navigation on on on, on unmanned aircraft. Um, and can be utilised, you know, that, that information can be fed from a satellite in orbit, you know. So, um, and then we say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the speeds can't be achieved by the aircraft that we know today. Um, you know, we can't reach ridiculous speeds. And uh, the problem is, is that people don't do enough research. You know, in 1963, you know, the, David Adair was making rockets that were travelling at 8,450 miles an hour. In fact, it left Earth and hit space so fast that they thought the rocket had blown up uh, on its pad. 
Um, and I didn't expect a double explosion because a double explosion came from not only the launch of the, this rocket, but it, because it reached space so fast, it left a vacuum, left a hollow vacuum, which collapsed from the top downwards to the ground, causing a double explosion, blew, blew cows out of the field, took roofs off. You know, it's, the generals are quite impressed about those um, those um, magnetic uh, engine, um, was it a magnetically shielded fusion containment engine? Um, that's technology in 1963. You know, I mean, it's, you know, let's not kid ourselves. You know that we've probably got technology. You can do that. Um, can it move backwards and forwards in such a way? Well, it can't be manned. Surely can't be manned. If that is the case, but let me just go back to the days of the stealth fighter. Well, the stealth fighter was manufactured in 1973. We first saw it in 1991, hit our television screens during the 1991 Gulf War. And we thought, wow, what the Americans got a new toy, you know. Uh, unbeknownst to us, though, that been flying around the skies on test ranges since 1973. And what they did is, is that on many occasions they, com they competed them against pilots flying star fighters. And those pilots reported, you know, it's a strange craft, unidentified, don't know what it is. As far as they were concerned, it was a UFO that was outmaneuvering them at incredible speeds. Um, and uh, one minute it was on radar, the next minute it couldn't find it, it was absolutely non-existent. Wow, there it goes again, you know. Um, you know, in its day, uh, they were purposely peeing against these pilots because it's a live scenario. They want to make sure. You know that uh, how they can compete. You know is uh, what they don't want. I mean, what, really, what they're after is pilots not being able to compete with it. It shows that technology works. I also know from the background, from the research, that drone war um, technology has been going on since at least 2015. I've got documentation from Israel saying that. Uh, and don't get me wrong, the Israelis are, um, and Afghanistanis are very, very good at identifying what UFOs are. I mean, and they don't have any problem writing UFO down. There are many, many UFO documents from Israel that say UFO. But there is also a, a spread of documents, military documents from Israel military bases, which stipulate CIA pill-shaped pill drones. CIA pill-shaped drones. And they couldn't catch them. They would out outmaneuvered by them. There was a waste of time even scrambling jets to try and get them away. That was 2015. So what are them? And why did they call them pill-shaped CIA drones? Why did they call them CIA drones? You know, what, what, the, you had no problem saying UFOs on many other occasions, but why did they say CIA drones? It was very interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I really, really don't know. I mean, what I can say is go back and look at the times when these incidents happened, right from the first Tic Tac incident. And every time there was an incursion, every time pilots, military pilots, were um, pitted against these craft to go out there and come head to head with these things. And there'd always been a recent military installation on board the Roosevelt or the Nimitz or a number of other vessels in regarding high tech radar systems and numerous different other pieces of, of, uh, of equipment. And it was always just after that installation um, when pilots would encounter these things. It's like wondering. Uh, and what are they trying to achieve? Is, is this where they fitted new new material, uh, new radar systems, and they want a live scenario against some of the most exotic aircraft that we have on planet Earth now, which is probably pilotless, because that's the way to go, uh, against some of the best pilots that we have flying aircraft. And there's probably no comparison. 
Um, and I don't think we're the only ones. I think the China and Russia have them. There's plenty of painters that they've got to show that they've been working on drone technology, hyper, hyper speed, hypersonic drone technology for the last 25 years. So um, I wouldn't want to place my bet and be on that. I want to say, okay, it's it's the phenomenon. Because to me, the UFO phenomenon is one that materializes, dematerializes, it morphs. It creates certain infrasonic frequencies, has the observed effect, and all these are, you know, it can split. Sometimes some of these things just split into two, and, you know, it's it's, it's remarkable, some, some of the, the, the phenomena, but I'm not seeing it present in a location that could be like a new Area 51. It's better than Area 51 because you can't fly over it. You can't take a ship through it, so a militarized zone. Uh, so you, and you can't see it from land because it's too far out, you know, it's beyond the horizon. The operations uh, is not a perfect place. That's the best place, probably, or one of the best places, probably, probably Antarctica. But um, to to conduct these things in a in a very specific region, only used by the navy for these particular tests. Um, I'm not. Under, I'm on the shelf. I'm yeah. on the shelf. I'll tell you, I I really am. Um, I was very suspicious about ATIC coming out, I mean, um, when it first did, because the first thing that they did is, on the TTSA, is um, they got a big conference together and they went out to the world, and there was a big screen behind them showing this object on the screen. Um, the photograph of that object on the screen was a minor balloon. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, it was my photo, <laughs> and which had been taken for only one place on the internet, which was on the Jeff Rent sightings website. Um, and it had not only been taken, but it had been manipulated, been light blasted, and put up and used. And I couldn't believe it. I saw it. I thought, hang on a second. Not even my team would do that. I'm not going to be daft enough to do that. And we're talking, supposed to be talking about some of the most academic science guys in the subject who were lined up there on the stage. And I thought to myself, how can they, you know, something don't ring right here. The control over it, now it's been perceived. So I was very, very suspicious right from day one. Uh, I mean, you know, it helps when I had a relative. It was a uh, a Top Gun trainer. Flavor uh, Flavor was a Top Gun trainer originally as well. So, um, I, but so was so was uh, an uncle of mine, and um, they tell me about how things work and procedures. So sometimes, yeah, they just don't know where they're going to go out, and uh, and they're petered against. They're always always petered against new technology. All pilots are. They'll, they'll never say it. They'll never say that. On oh, one day, I was told to just fly out to this zone, and then. Wham, bam, bingo, I was up against an F-22 Raptor or whatever, and I had absolutely no chance. Uh, they'll never tell you that, but that's what they do. You know, it's a live scenario. It's like when you're in the, in the army and they take you to go through the fight. It's not going to tell you that Company B is going to jump you halfway through, yeah. you know, in a live scenario so they can get the right measurements and all the information. I mean, and then you take all that information and you take it back. In the past, when pilots had sighting, it was like, don't talk about it. You know, it's, it's official secret, don't talk about it. On this occasion, oh, well, we want the information out, let the pilots talk. And they were there within next to no time to retrieve all that data. How did they get there so fast? How did they know about it so fast? How, and they just took it all away. It all sounds like an inside job. So, all of right, okay, so I, I appreciate everything you've said, okay, because you're right that I don't doubt that any military test on their own because there's enough his, uh, evidence of that throughout history that it's happened in various horrific ways as well at times. Technology-wise, I imagine the technology we have is incredible and no doubt would mimic some of these UFOs, UAPs movements as well. 
Mm-hmm. Regarding the Tic Tac event, though, working backwards, you mentioned how did they know? So the event was going on for seven to ten days, and apparently there were installations along that seaboard that can monitor ballistic missiles coming in from elsewhere, coming in through orbit. Mm-hmm. So it would be people have taken that the incident happened with Fravor, and within minutes they were on board and took that information. Well, if another installation or organization was already aware of these objects being there for seven to ten days then they would have been aware of what was happening and what was going on and if there was movement and one of them's broken away and there's been an engagement so that that would answer that one for me quite reasonably the the drone absolutely the u.s will have incredible drone technology the russians i'm sure they do but they're not using them right now in an active war situation which is interesting and telling given they're quite happy to let their tanks get stuck in the mud and and embarrassing themselves quite frankly technologically (laughs) Um, the chinese is a funny one because chris mellon came out very intelligent man who again on on these these subjects is more or less and just actually a few days ago declared again that the et hypothesis is most likely when you look at all all scenarios on the table he mentioned um, some months ago that if you look at a, a recent chinese rocket failure they tried to launch a rocket into space and it ended up landing on a rural road crushing the road defense and almost going down a hillside you know and he mentioned you know that's the technology you're looking at however to to counteract that argument from chris mellon to be fair and for me not to fanboy or just be one-sided a few weeks later the chinese then launched a hypersonic missile which flew around the earth that the u.s apparently had no idea that they had which i probably don't believe but you know that's them keeping that to themselves the tic tac itself potentially a drone but why a 40-foot drone because Fravor reported the size of it. For me, the fact it dropped from that height to a dead stop, as many of them did, you know, it was raining UFOs, as Kevin Day, as Gary Vuer, he said. Again, there's a technological leap that just seems more than 10, 20, or 30 years to me, or even 50 years, and some of the maneuverability that we've not seen the data for, but we've heard the data for. And it's that, and I think it's like Lou Elizondo says, you're right that no doubt we have technology that can go thousands of miles an hour, thousands of miles per hour the dead stops the turns the the technology within all of that around it i think negates the fact this is us russian or chinese technology however i do appreciate a lot of what you've said is they no doubt have tech that's far superior than what we know yeah i mean if you talk to researchers all around the world and you'll say okay you know i don't think they'll they'll say yeah well you know because of the move maneuvers and how they did so many things i don't really think it's our technology but then when you got to start to question them about the, um, you know, secret space program, you know, breakthrough, breakaway civilization. Oh, yeah, yeah, believe in that. Like, Hang on a second. Because you can't have it both ways. No, you know, you no. Say, you know, we got to say, okay, well, they, I mean, I know that is, um, I've, I've seen the Chinese um, um, helicopter. Well, it's a drone. It's, it's a handy classic it's a helicopter. It looks like a, it looks like a Tic Tac. It looks like a, it's a black one, actually. Um, and it's roughly about that same size, to be honest with you. Um, no visible blades or anything. It was just a pill-shaped black thing <laughs> that they had, and that was what five, six, six years ago. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's 22 pieces of video footage which is still left to come out. They got they got film of this, not put it out there. I've got film. I've got true film. While well, everybody was staring at the the infrared images of a heat trace from something that you couldn't identify if it was tic tac shaped or not. I was looking at video footage taken from the location. There's a got real proper footage. And it, yeah, it's, it is a tic-tac shape. They do move. 
remarkably weird in the sky as if they're as if the moon shouldn't have the capabilities to move like that but you know you don't know if they are they fully immersive within our environment for one i mean why don't you know there was, there was sometimes there's reports that they don't even make a wake entering into the ocean why is that because they're not connected with our physical reality in some cases something that's not connected into our physical reality can maneuver any hypersonic speed backwards and forwards just as apparitions can and anything else you know i mean we have the problem of, of of thinking that everything is in the normal realistic world that we're looking at and feel when we experience something like that but it might not necessarily be so. It might be the case that, you know, they can pop in and pop out. You might be able to see these things. You don't get them on radar, but just seeing them is not enough to say, to represent them in our reality. Because there's no evidence sometimes to expect. You know, we, like you say, you know, sometimes they might be seen to pass through a solid item. Sometimes they might see to go into the ocean, not leave a wake. You know, they're not connecting with the physical reality around us, you know, and we, when we're dealing with something like that, then it's something I would say is beyond that is the phenomena, if that's the case, you know. Um, but I'm not seeing enough. I'm just the kind of I'm just kind of on the seesaw, Andy. You know, I, I would love to. I would love to see more to support the phenomena that I'm used to experiencing within my research field in the UAP, um, as opposed to advanced technology that's the problem i mean you know we we talk about roswell and we say well you know what it's been 75 years actually this year 75 years can we replicate a craft like that um taking into consideration it only takes two and a half years to build an aircraft carrier um and we know the size of them well you know imagine having unlimited resources the best the best brains in the world I would say, yeah, I don't think it'll take too long to, to work out and back engineer something, as long as we've got the properties here on Earth to create those things, and yeah. You know, Steve, um, let, let me ask, because people are going to be shouting at me if I don't ask this. You mentioned just before that you, you've you seen alternative footage. Was that of the same Tic Tac event? No. I got independent footage from people on the coastline, the Mexican okay. shoreline, yeah, and uh, of the Tic Tacs in flight color beautiful color daylight beautiful so um, why why doesn't that why isn't it one online or why wouldn't you release that the second one i'm guessing there's an obvious answer to that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access the shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little
can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. 